Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. Stories make us human, and listening to stories is one of our oldest compulsions. In this week's podcast, you'll hear a forgiveness story about a young student's misbehavior, a woman's survival story, the kindness of strangers on a train, and a lifetime of love stories. Before we get to the stories, though, I want to recommend a podcast to you. If you like history and love Montana, here's a new take. Willard High School is the only alternative high school in Montana, and the Willard Podcast explores the history of Willard High School, taking a look at the transition the Willard family is currently undergoing. Check out this fantastic podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or stream it online at willardpodcast.com. Our podcast today was recorded in front of a live audience on April 12, 2018 at Free Ceramics in Helena, Montana. Eight storytellers shared their true personal story on the theme, didn't see that coming. Today, we hear from four of those storytellers. A philosophical discussion in the principal's office changes the course of young Aaron Parrott's life. A few years after that conversation, he has the unexpected opportunity to apologize for the behavior that landed him in the principal's office in the first place. Aaron calls his story, How to Make a Teacher Cry. Thanks for listening. I used to be a really bad kid. And worse than that, I hung out with a lot of other really bad kids. And in eighth grade, it was sort of this perfect storm of badness in that we all ended up in the same eighth grade homeroom. And worse than that, the regular teacher, about a third of the way through the year, I think she got sick or there was a death in the family or something, and she left, and so we got a substitute teacher for the rest of the year. (laughs) You can already see where this is going. Um, and we just treated this poor teacher horribly. Miss Porzik was her name. Uh, and two things I remember really vividly, my friend Rod Storley, I think we all got into chewing Copenhagen around this time. And her strategy was the, the worst kid in the class she would put behind her at her desk facing the rest of the class. But then she couldn't see what that person was doing. <laughs> And so he's sitting at her desk chewing Copenhagen and opening the drawers and spitting into the drawers. Told you we were bad. Um, And I ended up in the principal's office because I think I discovered William Burroughs around this time also. And I would sit in in my desk and just shake like this and say, I need a fix, I need a fix. And so I ended up in the principal's office But the thing was, we go to the principal's office, and the principal says, so what's he doing? And then my teacher says, I need a fix. And it was so goddamn funny seeing my teacher do this that, of course, I laughed. But the principal didn't think that was very funny. And the really ironic thing is, I don't remember what punishment I got. I, I do remember he called my parents, and that was probably punishment enough. Um, but I don't recall what the punishment was relative to the class. And that was really the last I remembered of the class, those two highlights. And then I went on to high school and became an even worse person. Um, (laughs) But then my biggest crime there was I just skipped school a lot. And finally I, I got expelled, or I was about to be expelled, and instead of kicking me out, I tried the Project for Alternative Learning, which changed my life. It really uh, turned me around in the following way. The, f- the first day I went into this project for alternative learning, it was on the May, at the May Butler Center on Rodney Street. 
I sit in the principal's office there, and he says, well, what do you want to learn? And because I was kind of a smartass, I said, philosophy. And he said, well, we, we don't teach that here, but let me enroll you down at Carroll College. And he got on the phone, and literally 10 minutes later, I was signed up for classes at Carroll College. Um, the, the most important one, and the one I really remember, was uh, uh, I think it was an ethics class or a survey of philosophy with Dr. Barry First. And I loved it. He, he was a great teacher. And apparently I was a great student, you know, 16 years old and a juvenile delinquent at Helena High, but <laughs> put me in the right atmosphere and suddenly I turned around. And I remember he invited me to his house for dinner. Um, you know, I'm 16 or 17 years old and uh, just was amazed that, you know, somebody was taking me this seriously. And so my girlfriend and I go to, to his house and knock on the door and the woman that answers the door is my eighth grade teacher. <laughs> but she was very gracious and invited us in, and we had a great dinner, great conversation. Um, and at the end of the night, I think I fumbled some, some muttered apology for what I'd done in eighth grade. And to her credit, she just said, oh, I don't think it's as bad as you remember. And you seem pretty bored back then. I'm glad to see that you've turned it around um, and found something that interests you. And I guess this story is really about forgiveness, but also the power of a good teacher. Thanks, Aaron. Aaron Parrott is a professor of English at the University of Providence. His most recent book is Maple and Lead, a collection of short stories with woodcuts by Seth Roby. He also runs the Territorial Press in Helena, Montana, devoted to fine letterpress editions of handcrafted Montana literature. Learn more about Aaron at AaronParrot.org. After years of struggle with the emotional damage that comes from abuse, Elizabeth Rivard comes to believe that the beauty of the world can be found in the human heart. She calls her story a beautiful heart. A quick warning for some of our more sensitive listeners. Elizabeth's story addresses sexual abuse with frank language. Thanks for listening. As Mark told you, I'm from a large family. It's a large Catholic family. You know, usually it's Catholic or Mormon. So, um, I was born in 1962, and I have three older brothers, six older sisters, and a little brother who's five years younger than me. So, when I was growing up, it was the 60s, early 70s, for this story. My older siblings were teenagers. My brothers were eligible for the draft. But uh, luckily, they had high draft numbers. And they were all good liberals and out protesting the Vietnam War, occasionally getting arrested. On Friday nights, my parents liked to go out. They played bridge and belonged to a bridge club. So they would go out on Friday nights. And my siblings would put the colored light bulbs in and have parties at our house with music and dancing and drinking and getting stoned and occasionally tripping. And 
while they were babysitting me and my little brother and a few of the other siblings and whatnot. So this is, this is the environment that I grew up in. It, it was a great family, loving family, but there was a lot going on. Not only that, but my grandmother lived with us. So the, for a period of years there, there were 14 people living in our house with one and a half bathrooms. And I was the lucky one that got to share a bedroom with my grandmother. And she was going blind from glaucoma and senile. And not only that, she suffered from depression after her husband had died a number of years before. And twice she had attempted suicide while we shared a room together. Um, one time she slit her wrist and another time she overdosed on sleeping pills. And I do have some vague memories of that. Um, so it was frightening for me. Fast forward to when I'm about 11 years old and there was a neighbor an older gentleman who was, well, gentleman, I use that word loosely, but um, he was a World War II veteran. And um, he used to sit out on his porch and sometimes myself or two of my girlfriends, Sharon and Julie, for this story, uh, we would go on the porch and talk to him and he would ask us to go and get the newspaper for him or quart of milk or something and we would go to the store for him and he'd give us a, a quarter or whatever and we would buy candy and in those days you could get a decent amount of candy for a quarter. And then we started going in his house and uh, cleaning for him sometimes. The house was um, pretty dank. The shades were always drawn so it was kind of dark in there. And um, I remember the furniture being kind of sparse, and there were no pictures I can remember on the walls. But he was kind of fun, because he would let us smoke his cigarettes. <laughs> and um, he had uh, Penthouse Forum magazines there, which I don't know if it's even still made, but it's about the size of a Reader's Digest. And I don't recall there being pictures in it, but um, there were dirty stories. And so we would read the dirty stories, and some of them were just ridiculous. I, I do remember one specifically. I think it was one a reader submitted. <laughs> and the reader had an ant farm. And he was sleeping, and he woke up and having the wet dream of his life, and the ants had all gotten out and were crawling all over him. <laughs> So, <laughs> I think even at the time, I thought that was ridiculous. <laughs> but anyway, you know, things kind of progressed. And um, at some point, he started touching us and exposing himself to us. And we were not always all there at the same time. You know, there could be different configurations of the three of us there. Um, and this went on for about a year or a year and a half and, um, you know, got a little more intense as things progressed. I was going to Catholic school at the time. Like I said, I was about 11 and so I was in about sixth grade. So I knew that this was wrong and I shouldn't be doing it. 
but you know, I was a kid and I think I had curiosity. I, um, maybe some of it felt good. I was getting some attention, which I wasn't really getting at home so much because there was so much going on with the older kids. But at a point I just, I couldn't do it anymore because I was just so anxious. Um, I ended up growing up to be an anxious young adult. I had some anxiety and depression. I think I, you know, I functioned quite normally. I went to school, I had friends, I went out, but on the inside, I, I really struggled a lot. I had a lot of shame and guilt and I felt like I had a big secret that I just could never tell anyone. I didn't tell anyone in my family. I was so ashamed and I just thought, God, nobody's nobody would understand. Nobody's been through this. This is just really bad. What, you know, and it was eating me up inside, to be quite honest. I even thought about suicide a couple, you know, when I was really feeling down. I mean, luckily I never attempted it or anything, but that's just the angst that it caused me. It was like all my emotions were tied up in a big ball and I couldn't understand them. It was only until many years later that I started to work out the knots of that ball and, 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 you know, separate out my emotions and, and learn to deal with them. But, um, I was about 21 when I, uh, one morning I, I had an apartment with some other friends and I woke up one morning and while I was in that in between state of sleep and wakefulness, I had this like a voice in it was like my in my right ear and it said, All the beauty of the world can be found in the human heart. And it was absolutely a profound experience for me. I mean, it came with a a, a flood of feeling and it at the time, it felt like Jesus was whispering that in my ear. And it just totally warmed me because I was, I was able to see beauty around me in the world. You know, I would ride my bike over the Peace Bridge to Canada, to the beaches up there by myself, or ride down to the waterfront downtown, or appreciate the flowers and people's yards and whatever. And but I couldn't see any beauty in myself. I was just so knotted up with shame and guilt. So it was a balm for my soul. You know, all the beauty of the world can be found in the human heart. It was just profound, like, wow, that's that's in me and that's in, in everyone. And that was the beginning of my healing journey. So thank you for listening. Thanks, Elizabeth. Elizabeth Rivard grew up in a very large family in Buffalo, New York. She fell in love with stories at the family dining room table, where they were a regular occurrence. Being one of the youngest siblings, she was mostly a listener. Her family still shares stories when they get together. It's one of their favorite things to do. Thanks for listening to the Tell Us Something podcast. If you enjoy the stories you hear, please rate us on Apple Music or Stitcher. 
Leaving us a review and rating really helps get the podcast to more listeners, and we want to reach as many people as possible. Please rate and review us, and then recommend the Tell Us Something podcast to one person who has never listened to it before. Thank you. We've got two more stories this week. Before we get to the stories, I want to thank the Tell Us Something title sponsors. The Bookstore at the University of Montana, a local bookstore serving the students, faculty, and staff of the University of Montana, as well as the Missoula community. MontanaBookstore.com CabinetParts.com the number one source for cabinet hardware since 1997. Anyone searching for the best kitchen cabinet hardware at a great price needs to go to CabinetParts.com. CabinetParts.com is the direct source for all of your cabinet hardware needs. Gecko Designs. The creative crew at Gecko Designs builds beautiful, mobile-friendly websites for both large and small clients in Missoula and around the country. Visit the Gecko Designs team on North Higgins in Missoula or online at geckodesigns.com. Logjam Presents. Headquartered in Missoula, Montana, Logjam Presents has created a unique artist and concert-goer experience that is unmatched in the Northwest. Logjam Presents is the exclusive operator and promoter of the Kettle House Amphitheater, the Wilma, and the Top Hat Lounge. Logjampresents.com All right, let's get back to the storytelling. Chelsea Rice and her partner take a long train ride to Minneapolis where they hope to get better information about Chelsea's recent cancer diagnosis. In the midst of their fear and confusion about the diagnosis, they are reminded of the kindness of strangers. Chelsea calls her story on a train to Cancer Town. Thanks for listening. In 2012, as Mark said, I was diagnosed with a rare and aggressive bladder cancer. It was October, and in the weeks before, my partner and I had been sitting in the Capitol Rotunda watching a Buddhist monk tap out a mandala made of sand. And we were there for multiple days in a row watching this beautiful process unfold. And I'm sure that I don't, I'm sure that there was a intention that was set for that particular mandala. Perhaps it was compassion. But for me, I just kept thinking about impermanence over and over and over again. Um, One of those days that we were up there was October 5th, and we were just about our 15th. Dates are really hard to remember when you're about to learn you have cancer. And uh, we went to go see a urologist over at St. Peter's. That day, it was a Friday, at about 4.30 p.m., right before my 35th birthday, about two weeks before. And when a doctor tells you to come in on a Friday at 4.30 p.m., beware. (laughs) So from what I remember, there was my partner and I sitting and waiting, and I already knew that this was going to be a cancer diagnosis, but when she pulled up the pilogram, which is basically a black and white x-ray that just pulls out one system of the body, and this was my kidneys, my ureters, and my bladder. And she pulls it up on her computer, and my partner, Charlie, who I've been with at that time for about a decade, is sitting next to me. And before she can even start talking about the system as a whole, I already can see 
the lump, the tumor on the side of my bladder, and everything just goes dead silent, kind of like Charlie Brown's teacher, just But I can feel, the only thing I can feel is my partner's hand holding my thigh, just kind of lightly tapping, keeping me present for at least a little bit. I remember sitting in the parking lot after that diagnosis thinking, how do I go home and call my parents? How do I, how do we, and I think I even said to my partner, Charlie, how does somebody get this diagnosis and then get in a car and drive home? Like, how do you do that? So I did sit on the back porch that day and I called my parents and told them and delivered this terrible news. I think what was even more terrible is that the bladder cancer was a rare cancer that only 2% of the diagnoses in the United States are. The other 98% are commonly related to lifestyle, drinking, smoking, working in chemical factories. Mine was due to environmental toxins, um, arsenic in groundwater. That's a different story though. So in order to determine a treatment for my bladder cancer, nobody here has the skill really, and there are no studies to determine how you would treat squamous cell carcinoma of the bladder. So we had to go to a tertiary institution. And what we decided that fall was to go over to the Mayo Clinic, what Eva Ensler calls cancer town. (laughs) It's okay, you can laugh, cancer's kind of funny. (laughs) And we at the time, I was teaching part-time as an adjunct professor between Helena College and Carroll College. My partner is a high school teacher, so we were totally making lots of money. And I was fresh out of graduate school, so I did not have insurance. And this is 2012. So we didn't have a whole lot of money, so we drove on a month after the diagnosis. We drove up to Haver on a frosty November day to catch the train to Rochester. Haver, have you you all been to the Haver train station? It's (laughs) one room. I don't think this really exists, but I think that there's like a dilapidated um, phone booth on the outside, maybe by the train tracks. Yeah. And it's like a clapboard, like siding that's all weathered. There's like one person who shows up for 30 minutes and then leaves when the train comes and when you depart. So my partner and I get on the train and, you know, it boards about midday. So you drive through, you go through the night on the train. And I don't know if any of you have ridden a train lately. It's just barely a step above riding a greyhound. Just barely. It's cold. It's really cold. When you, if you have a seat near the window and you lean up against it, you can feel the winter coming through the vents and against your face. And lots of families in bulk ride with lots of kids. And so it often looks like there's the kids have been like licking the glass <laughs> and then like rubbing their snot on it. It's pretty spectacular for a sick person. 
So when we got on, I um, happened to see where the conductors would sit. We were in the very back train car, and I noticed that they had Lysol wipes, so I kind of stole a couple and like took them to my chair and wiped things down. I was terrified. When your immune system is compromised, everything is scary. You know, we drove through the night, and it was a solemn ride. Those seats are really uncomfortable. They don't go back all the way. You kind of sit, you know, scrunched up. There's people like yelling, there's people getting drunk. It's very noisy, lots of clamor. And all I can remember passing through the night was going through Williston in North Dakota and seeing the oil fields on the horizon. And they're really beautiful. It's hard to say that. But they're like little candle wicks, like staggered at different levels along the horizon. They're beautiful. And the workers from Williston were on the train with us. And I mean, I'm a liberal, I'm crazy liberal. Of course, I have a same-sex partner, duh. Um, and you know, I'm pretty, dis I'm pretty concerned about fracking and oil fields. And the workers were so pleasant and they were so kind and they had these really even-keeled conversations with us. And they were just riding the train back to their cities, just trying to feed their families. And it was really, a profound moment talking to them. That night, my partner and I wanted to eat dinner in the dining car. And if you've ever ridden an Amtrak train, um, you don't get to just sit with you and your person. They fill the seats up. And so we sat on one side in the dining car. And Amtrak food is very cliche. It was like a piece of farmed salmon with like a stick of poorly steamed broccoli over it. You know, it was very bland food. It looked good, but it was pretty bland. But before we started to eat, these two people, they were bringing these two people to us. And I'm not going to lie, again, with a little bit of judginess, um, there was a tall, disheveled-looking man wearing, like, uh, outdoor gear, and a smaller woman of some Asian descent with a gold cross around her neck. And I was like, oh man, I might have even leaned into my partner and said, boy, this is going to be an interesting dinner. And they came and they sat down. And quite honestly, again, I don't remember what we talked about. It was all very superficial. Um, but I do remember that she had on this really bright floral print with like a cardigan and he had on a blue Columbia coat. and. It was pleasant, we had a great meal. And right at the end, he said, you know, what, what are you guys doing? Why are you going to Minnesota? And I said, oh, you know, I have, I have cancer and we're going over there to get another opinion and find out what the treatment is. And she was just immediately like empathetic and softened and, oh my God, we went, we went through something similar. He, you know, he had prostate cancer and, you know, it was so hard, and we just, we'll be praying about you, we'll be thinking about you, and, you know, we'll, our hearts are with you. And we kind of just tidied up dinner and said thank you and went our separate ways. And Charlie and I, we went to the back of the train and sat down and kind of tried to cozy up with those flimsy little Amtrak blankets and get cozy, and about an hour passed, and then we see the two of these people walking towards us. They're, they're like, oh my God, we've been all over this train looking for you. And trains, uh, you know, Amtrak trains are two level, right? You have like upstairs and downstairs. So these people, they're, you know, they're up and down. They're looking all over for us. They have their own room. Lucky them. <laughs> if you can get a room on an Amtrak train, get one. 
But they walk up and say, you know, we just wanted to come see you and give you a hug and wish you well again. And we were like, oh, thank you. You know, and we got up and we gave them big hugs. And while we were in full embrace, both of us, one of the, the man shoved something into my partner's pocket and the woman shoved something into my hand. And we both pulled back from the hug and we knew they had given us money. I mean, it was very clear that they had shoved money into our hands. And we were like, oh gosh, no, no, we don't need this. We don't need this at all. Thank you very much. You know, we tried to turn it down once, right? <laughs> Generously, just once. Because we really, we were in a bad spot. Um, but no, 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 please take it, they said. And so we thanked them and said, oh, we really appreciate it. You know, this is going to be a hard time. And off they went. And we sat down and looked in our pockets. And I had $200 in cash and my partner had a $300 check in our pocket. That was one of my first experiences during my cancer journey with strangers reaching out to us and giving us way more than we even thought was possible. I later, because the address was on her um, check, wrote her a thank you card and sent it off to Seattle where they lived. And I don't remember her name and it doesn't matter. Um, she sent a note back that basically said, we are so happy to have been able to provide for you. And you do not have to keep up this relationship because of it. And we wish you well. Thanks, Chelsea. Chelsea Rice moved to Montana in 2011 to join her partner and within a year was diagnosed with a rare and aggressive bladder cancer. It was then that she finally learned about the greatness of love that is born of community and sometimes comes from complete strangers. She's an advocate for cancer patients, teens, and misfits, a lover of arts and literature, and a writer of nonfiction. She believes in resilience, is a survivor, and is also a crazy bird lady. For our final story, Bob Yost certainly didn't see it coming when he receives a text from his wife as he unpacks the U-Haul after a big move. Bob calls his story, If Love Was Easy. Thanks for listening. God, I love that woman, Rebecca. We have great sex. We do have bizarre arguments. But we really do have great kids. I would say they are, uh, they're very beautifully unique. As is their mother, Rebecca. She couldn't be here tonight. She's in Oregon. I've been married 38 years. Yeah, thank you. It's pretty amazing. Um, I first met Rebecca, and I didn't actually meet her. We were both state employees, and I was sitting just on the other side of the cubicle from her. She was on the other side of the wall. I could hear her talking, and she was talking about the new guy who had just started work, me. And it was not very flattering <laughs> whatsoever. But just hearing that voice, I was so intrigued. She had no, I mean, there was no filter whatsoever in whatever she said. I learned more about my coworkers and my boss than I ever would of meeting them. That was a Monday. The Saturday before, Susan who worked downstairs in the same department, 
She had lived with her parents all her life. That Saturday morning, she moved into my tiny little duplex apartment. That Saturday afternoon, we were married by a Pentecostal preacher. Yeah, it was also her dad. It was surprising. Her mom and dad got that wedding together pretty fast. We were in a big, uh, big ceremony, a lot like this beautiful building. And just to give you an idea about it, the four groomsmen and myself, we are dressed, and I'm not exaggerating, shoe to this head to toe in matching rental outfits. And I was drunker than a skunk. I mean, to the wall, because I did not love her. That next Saturday, in my tiny little duplex apartment, the phone rings. Now, this is way back before any kind of cell phone, you know, fax, all that stuff, right? I didn't even have an answering machine. So my one and only landline, which is attached to the kitchen wall, rings. And I still love it. It's so funny when you think of those old phones, right? Rotary. It had two real metal bells in it with a ringer in between. So I pick it up. Hello? Is Susan there? It's a female voice. I say, no, I'm sorry, she's not. Oh, is this her husband? Why, yes, it is. Oh, I hear congratulations are in order. You're a newlywed. I say, thank you very much. She says, well, this is the nurse from Dr. Middleton's office. The tests are still all negative. Susan is not pregnant. Yeah, I'm an idiot. I didn't see that coming. I married her because she told me she was pregnant. That evening, I was to meet her, of course, her parents, at her house. I show up. Now, this is all kind of foggy now. But I do remember going in the kitchen, and they're there with Susan. I take the ring off. I set it on the kitchen table. Some things were said. Because it's come to known, I guess they knew, but I didn't. (laughs) As I am leaving, Susan chases me down. She goes, I can't believe you did that. You ruined my mom's dinner. (laughs) Needless to say, that marriage lasted a legal 90 days. I'm going back to that that little duplex apartment to pick up my stuff. And my brother and my dad come with me. And my brother, he pulls it up and he goes, he's packing a nine millimeter. He goes, you know, just in case we have some trouble. (laughs) Okay, George, we're not going to have any trouble. Get inside. Lo and behold, there are a few things missing. But thank goodness my pride and joys are there. I had a, a big old... Magnavox TV, and it was in a wood cabinet, man. And my stereo component system, oh, God, love that thing. And my brother had made a whole wood cabinet, you know, to hold records, components, my turntable, you know, and big speakers. Susan had taken a can of spray paint, and it was over everything. Classic. I can laugh about it now. Um, So anyway, we got our stuff loaded up. And my dad turns to me, and God bless you, Dad. I love you, and you know that. Um, He turns to me. Now, my dad loves a good good phrase like, you know, God damn it. Yeah, God damn it. And he'd use the hell word, you know. But he turns to me, and he goes, that's the most expensive fuck you'll ever have. (laughs) 
Now, I will tell you, that is the only time, never again, ever in my 90-year life with my dad that I ever heard him use the F word. No, I didn't see that coming, I'll tell you that. Um, fast forward, Susan, out of my life, luckily, Rebecca, we got married outdoors underneath the woods. It was glorious, just perfect, wonderful day. And as I tell this story, I'm very lucky. I, I've had the love of some really great women in my life, for sure. We got to, I got in the car one day, drove 1,750 miles from east to west, right? And you know where I ended up? The Mitchell Building down next to the Capitol because I had a job interview. Took the interview, took the written test. I did not get the job. Okay. Two weeks later, though, another job opens up in the same area with the same supervisor. So I got to do it by phone and fax. Got the job. We're moving to hell in Montana. It was glorious. Pack up the U-Haul, get here. And we rented for a while. Ended up buying five acres out on bird's eye, right? Loved it. Little old trailer. That first winter, it hit a 40 below. I mean, it was 40 below. And I came into town tonight, and I saw the AK Cafe, whatever it's, Alaskan Cafe. Used to be the Red Roof Cafe. Remember that? And they used to have fresh eggs. I know why, because when I used to go to breakfast there, they would serve up a platter of the biggest greasy fresh eggs because the chickens were right outside the window in a pen. That's how I, And you know, if my wife said, hey, I'm going shopping. Back then, it was great. Oh, honey, where are you going? Where was it? If you've been around here a while, it was the mall or Kmart. That was it. There was nothing else here. Loved it. Experience in Helena was actually a joy, I'll have to say. Are there state employees here tonight? Retired? Cool. Yeah. I mean, because I'm actually one of those. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. I, so both of those women I met as state employees. So I always think that's kind of an interesting you know, sidebar to it. And I have to admit, that first winter, we were in a little trailer, and I was feeding that wood stove like crazy, you know, keeping the, the pipes from freezing. I think that was my first inclination that Rebecca probably was not going to like Montana winters <laughs> at that point. So anyway, I'm going to fast forward to like about chapter 99 out of all this stuff. The great thing is, wonderful kids, raising them all, see them go off. They've done really well for themselves, and it's been really nice. My wife goes, you know what? We love that Oregon coast, don't we? And I go, yeah, it's really nice because we go out there to visit. I want to retire there. I go, that's cool. You know, I do, you know, I got, I got to wait till retirement and health insurance. Oh my God, I got to keep working. She goes, I don't care. I go, okay. It's one of those, yes, dear. Um, so I go, yep. We find a little place over there. She loves it. And I mean, blood, sweat, and tears. We're tearing up stuff out of the thing, tore off walls, took out cabinets, remodeled a bunch of it. Um, even, oh gosh, all new windows, all new appliances. Got back, had taken the la what I hope was the last 20-foot U-Haul <laughs> back from there, right? Because now I live in Missoula. Checking the U-Haul in Sunday evening. I get a text from her. I figure for sure it's going to say, oh, are you out shoveling snow because I'm walking on the beach? She said, I've been thinking about this a while. Okay. She'd been to a lawyer's office. She told me what the major settlement would be that I'd be served divorce papers. I was served divorce papers that week at work up front. But don't feel sorry for me. I've been very blessed. Yeah, I didn't see that coming. But there's always two sides to every story, too. But thank you.
Thanks, Bob. His regular daytime career has been working with taxes in Indiana, Oregon, and Montana. His nighttime gigs were playing drums in the bands Brand X, Jack Daniels, Sodbusters, and the last few years, sitting in as the drummer for Tom Catmull and the Clerics, Radio Static, and The Last Resort. His greatest joys come from his family, plus helping raise wonderful children that prove he did something right. Learn more about Bob and his music at baptismbar.com. Tell Us Something is proud to be fiscally sponsored by Missoula Community Foundation, a 501c3 organization. Missoula Community Foundation has been providing leadership to Missoula nonprofits and inspiring long-term philanthropy in Missoula since 2007. MissoulaCommunityFoundation.org. Fact and Fiction, where books, authors, ideas, and readers interact. FactandFictionBooks.com. Missoula Broadcasting Company, locally owned and operating four stations. The Trail 103.3, Missoula's quality rock, and a part of our unique Western Montana community. Featuring local DJs who love Missoula and know their music. Jack FM 105.9, playing what they want. U 104.5 FM, your at-work listening station. And ESPN 102.9, focusing on city, state, and regional sports giving exposure and insight to teams and athletes in and around Western Montana. Learn more at MissoulaBroadcasting.com. Enlightened Lab Float Center. Enlightened Lab is a spa featuring sensory deprivation or floating as a wellness therapy. Unplug, reset, and recharge in their state-of-the-art float tanks. Or sweat it out in their infrared sauna. Learn more at EnlightenLab.com. That's E-N-L-Y-T-E-N-L-A-B.com. Martin McCain Woodworks and Design. Learn more about Martin and his work at facebook.com slash Woodworks. Missoula Federal Credit Union. Find them at missoulafcu.org. Thanks to Cash for Drunkers who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at cashfordrunkersmusic.com. Thanks to Blue Feather Chiropractic. Find them at bluefeatherchiropractic.com. Thanks to Elkins Consulting. Learn more about their services at elkinsconsulting.com. Free Ceramics is a pottery center in Helena, Montana. Learn more about Free Ceramics at freeceramics.com. Fieldy Design. Check out their stuff at etsy.com slash shop slash Design. Podcast production by me, Mark Moss. Thank you to everyone who attends the live events, those of you who download the podcasts, and most especially to the storytellers, Aaron Parrott, Elizabeth Rivard, Chelsea of Rice, Bob Yost, Jerry Spencer, Rachel Aguinness, and Susie Holt. The next live Tell Us Something event is June 13th at the Wilma. The theme is Risk. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to the Tell Us Something podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can stream all of the stories ever told on the Tell Us Something stage for free at tellussomething.org.